You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. This is week number two in our series called A Better Covenant. And uh, I, I love talking about the blood covenant. Before we get into it, um, I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, but this book right here is a great book. Uh, I, every believer ought to have this book in their library. It's called The Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. And uh, I highly, highly recommend it. A lot of the material that we're using for this series is coming from that book. And uh, there are other great books about the blood covenant, but that one is uh, just really, really good. But Hebrews chapter 8, and let's look at verses 6 and 7. This is our foundation scripture for this particular series of lessons. Hebrews 8, 6 says this, but now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a uh, also mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. And as we said last week, the, in the word better there means this, that it was made stronger and it was designed to benefit or benevolently better the recipient. In other words, let me say it to you this way. The new covenant is better in the sense that God made it better for us. And that's what makes it better. It's not that the old one was bad. The old one was good. And the new one is just better. Uh, Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant. The two covenants don't fight with one another. They're not in competition with each other. They build upon the Old Testament builds, and then the New Testament builds on top of that. And so we we gave some things last week about uh, rules of interpretation when looking at scriptures and and things like that. I highly recommend that you go back and review that from last week. But turn back with me in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter seventeen, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and let's look at chapter seventeen. And verse 11, 17, 11, the Lord was giving the instructions to the children of Israel regarding sacrifice, and uh, he was very, very specific, and I'll explain to you why in just a moment, but he was uh, telling them, he said in verse 11, Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, one of the reasons that God was very much against them not partaking of blood as far as, uh, you know, he wanted to make sure that the food that they ate, uh, the meat in particular, you know, all the blood was drained out of it and so forth. And that a lot of that has to do with the cultures of the people that were around them once they got into the promised land, uh, part of their rituals and their things that they were involved in in idol worship required them to drink blood. And so, which is gross, but anyway, 
It was part of their rituals. And so to, again, further separate the children of Israel from those people, that was part of God's instruction. Now, when we are talking about the blood of Jesus, if the life is in the blood, then we're talking about the life of Jesus. So as you are studying and you're looking at the Word of God, particularly in the New Testament, and you see verses such as in Colossians that tell us that we have redemption through His blood, look at it this way and, and say this, think of it this way, that Jesus paid for our redemption with His life because His life was poured out for us on the cross. His blood was poured out for us, but it was His life that He gave. Now, when we receive Christ, think about it this way, you know, our blood and his blood are not literally mingled together, but our lives are mingled together. Our lives now belong to him and his life belongs to us. His life is now in our spirits. And so his life is a part of us. And so our two lives are mingled together now, just as if, uh, you know, part of that covenant relationship. Now, the Bible, as you know, is divided into two divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word testament comes from the Latin word testamentum, and uh, the actual literal word should have been covenant. And so what we have in the Bible is the separation between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The only discrepancy is, is technically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talking about the ministry of Jesus, we're all under the old covenant. Jesus operated and ministered under the old covenant until he went to the cross. And then, of course, after his death, burial, and resurrection, the old covenant was fulfilled, and now we're under the new covenant today. In the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word for covenant is the Hebrew word berith, B-E-R-I-Y-T-H, and it literally means this, to cut until blood flows, to cut until blood flows. So in the Old Testament, uh, the covenant, the word for covenant means to cut until blood flows. In the New Testament, the Greek was a little more, uh, I guess, secularized or whatever, but it means uh, a will or testament or contract. And so the Greek word is diatheke, it's D-I-A-T-H-E. E-K-E, and it means a contract, a will, or a testament. So, you know, you could look at it this way. Uh, the New Testament is Jesus' last will and testament. It's what he ordered to have take place and transpire following his death. The good news is, is he rose from the dead to make sure that his last will and testament got carried out. And uh, so that's a little bit different than what we deal with mostly. But the covenant is our is the very foundation of our contact with God and His contact with us. So it's imperative. It's hugely, hugely important that we understand these things about the covenant because it, it is what shapes your relationship with God and His relationship with us. The blood covenant between two parties is the most solemn, and sacred of all contracts. It is. It absolutely cannot be broken except by death. Okay, so uh, when you're thinking about this, think about it in that level of seriousness, okay? 
So what we want to do tonight is we want to begin to look at the Hebrew ritual of the covenant. Now, we'll say this, um, covenants are not unique to the Hebrew people. There were, at that time, many cultures that celebrated and participated in covenants, but God, of course, had a different motivation for it, and so his instructions were pertinent to his relationship with his people. But as we go through this, uh, you'll understand the uniqueness of some of these things, but I want you to keep in mind, again, that this was not something that was unique to the Hebrews. This is just specific instructions that God gave to the Hebrew people where covenant was concerned, okay? So there are nine steps to uh, consummating a covenant in the Old Testament, all right? That's what we're going to look at and begin to dive into tonight. So as we look at this, if two Hebrew men decided that they were going to enter into covenant with one another, this is what would transpire. This is what would take place. So number one is this. Uh, most men in the Old Testament and in Bible days wore a tunic or a robe or some type of overgarment. And so the first thing that you would do is you would take off your coat or your, uh, your robe and you would give it to the person that you were cutting the covenant with. When you were entering into that relationship, you would then give them your robe. And so by taking off my robe and giving it to you, what I'm symbolically saying is this, I'm giving you all of myself, my total being and my life, I pledge to you. And then you would do the same to me. You would give me your robe or your overgarment, and you would pledge the same thing to me. And in Bible days, your garment, that garment represented who you were. Uh, it, it told people uh, what strata of society you were a part of. You know, one thing that comes to mind, if you remember, when Jesus ministered to blind Bartimaeus, you remember blind Bartimaeus was on the side of the road and cried out to Jesus and said, son of David, have mercy on me. And and so the the people came over and told him to be quiet. And the Bible says he got louder. And, and finally, Jesus stopped and said, bring him to me. And it, so, and it says specifically that when Bartimaeus got up, he cast aside his robe and went to Jesus. Now, what was interesting about that is the robe that Bartimaeus would have worn would have been unique and identified him as a blind man. And so what he did in going to Jesus is dropped what made him, what identified him, and uh, set him apart as a blind man because he was believing that he was going to be healed at the hands of the Lord Jesus. So he was willing to cast that aside. And you know, one thing that we have to do, just a little side note, one thing that we have to be willing to do is when we're allowing God to minister to us and, and allowing him to help us become who God wants us to be, we have to be willing to let go of the things that maybe we have hung on to as our identity, what, what we use to identify us and be willing to let God change our identity. And so that's a little side note, but that's just the importance of that outer garment and that outer robe. So you and I, we're getting, we're cutting a covenant. So I have given you my robe. You've given me your robe. 
And again, we've pledged our lives to each other. Then number two is this, we would take off our belt. Now, again, we're talking about two males here. So you would take off your belt. Now, back in Bible days, belts did not hold up your pants, okay? So <laughs> they were used to hold um, your weapons. Uh, it might be, there might be a dagger or a sword attached to your belt. There might be uh, an arrow or something along that line, some type of armor. And so what you were doing is you took that off and you gave it to the person that you were cutting covenant with. And so in doing this, you're declaring to that person, you're saying, I am giving you all of my strength. I am pledging to you all of my support. As I give you my belt, I'm saying, here is my strength and my ability to fight. If anybody attacks you, they are also attacking me. Your battles are my battles, and my battles are your battles. I will fight with you. I will help defend and protect you. So this was extremely important. And so you would do that, and then the other person would make that same uh, action towards you and declare those same things. Now, the next step, number three, would be where we're, we cut the covenant. Now, this isn't probably what you think it is, but we'll get to what you probably think it is in just a moment. But when you would cut the covenant, you would take an animal and you would literally split it right down the middle. So if you had a, uh, a, a lamb or a goat or a heifer or some type of animal like that, you would literally cut the animal and split it right down the middle. And uh, this only happens, this, does, this part does not happen in the sacrifice at all. This only happens in a covenant. And so after you split the animal, you lay each half to the side separated, okay? So you have two, two heap of animal, a heap of animal over here and a, a pile of animal over here, all right? Then what you would do is both of you would stand in between the two animals, the two halves of the animals, and then facing the sacrifice or facing the animal, and then you would walk around in a figure eight around the halves of the animals until you end up facing each other in the middle. Okay, so you have the, these halves, the bloody halves of the flesh, you're standing there back to back, and then you walk around each of the halves mm -hmm. until you end up facing one another by crossing in a figure eight in the middle, okay? And then you end up facing one another. So when we do this, here's what this represents. We are saying that we are dying to ourselves, giving up our rights to our own life, and beginning a new walk with our covenant partner unto death. In this covenant, each half of the animal represents each of us. Second, since the blood covenant is the most solemn pact, we each point down to the bloody animal split in two and say this, God do, to, do so to me and more if I ever try and break the covenant. Just split me right down the middle 
feed me to the vultures because I tried to break the most sacred of all packs. So this was a very, very serious thing, okay? So again, you have the two halves of the animals, you've passed round them in the figure eight and you end up facing each other in the middle. And then you point to the halves of the animals and you, you're, you're basically declaring, if I dare break this covenant, may God do to me what we have done to these animals. Now, I want you to go with me to Genesis, the 15th chapter, please. Genesis, the 15th chapter, and we're going to see an example of this. And, and I'm, I'm going to just show this to you. We'll go into more detail of what was going on here later. But in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7, Genesis 15 and verse 7, now this is uh, early-ish in the, the relationship between Adam and God, and their, um, excuse me, between Abram and God, in walking in their relationship one an, with one another. And so God is having a conversation with Abram. In verse uh, 1, he, say, he tells Abram, he says, uh, do not be afraid because I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And what's cool about that is what he actually said to Abram was, I am El Shaddai. I am the one who is more than enough. And then on down the list, uh, God brings him outside the tent and he said, look now towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And so Abram poses the question to the Lord, and he said, what is the guarantee of this promise? What is the guarantee that this is going to take place? So look with me in verse 7 of chapter 15, and it says, Then God said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, this is Abram talking, how shall I know that I will inherit it? God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these pieces to God and cut them into down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Verse 11 and when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, uh, the King James says, a horror. And what it means is just a heavy darkness fell upon him. Okay. Now, this is, uh, let me give you just a little bit of insight as to what's going on. God is not cutting a covenant with Abram at this moment, God is cutting a covenant with Jesus at this moment. Now, here's what you'll see. Drop down to verse 17, please. It says, and it, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. So let me paint this picture for you. You have the halves of the animals and you have Abram just kind of sitting there waiting to see what God is going to do. And of course, the birds, the, the vultures try and come down. Abram fends them off. And so he's just waiting and he waits and the sun eventually goes down and it was dark. And it says, and it was dark that behold, there appeared, look at this, a smoking oven and a burning torch 
that passed between those pieces. Okay. So what did you have? You have two manifestations of God. You remember what the Bible says that God appeared to the children of Israel as by day, he was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Well, of course, these were huge because he was uh, providing for the entire camp. These are just smaller versions of those same manifestations. But notice there were two things, the, the smoking oven, and that's just the only way that Abraham knew how to interpret it. But we would say just a, a, a pillar of smoke, basically, and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. So you have God the Father and God the Son cutting covenant with each other. And we'll see later on, and in, in not tonight, but we'll see later on in all of this why they were cutting a covenant with each other. Now, somebody might say, well, how do we know that, that God wasn't cutting a covenant with Abraham? Well, look at the very next verse on verse 18. It says, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying. And so after he did all this, then he made a covenant with Abram. Okay. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things that are unique to, to this particular portion is that there is shedding of blood. Okay. And you're passing in between the two, the two halves and the covenant is being cut. Now, I will, I will go ahead and tell you this. This is where God established in covenant with the Lord Jesus and, and fully ratified and set in motion the plan of redemption. This is when God made the promise to the Lord Jesus that once the sacrifice was made and blood was shed, that Jesus would be raised from the dead, okay? So I'll give you that little part, and, and that's free. That won't cost you anything, all right? So here's the next thing. Number four, so the next step is you would take your right arm, and you would either make a small incision here on your in your palm or a small incision here until blood came out. And so what would happen at that point, we would raise our, our right arms, cut our palms or your wrist right here and bring them together. So in other words, if you can imagine, we would have bleeding cuts and now we would do this or shake hands. And this is actually where the blood would be commingled, where my blood would be on you and your blood would be on me. And we, in the doing this, we are swearing allegiance to each other. As the blood intermingles, we believe our lives. Remember, life is in the blood. So as we commingle our blood, we believe that our intermingling lives are now becoming one life. And so we're putting off our old life, our old nature, and we're putting on the nature and the life of our blood covenant partner. So the two of us are now becoming one person. All right, very important. All right, number five, after we would do this, then we would stand there with our hands clasped and while with our blood intermingling, we exchange names. 
I take a portion of your name into my name, and you take a portion of my name into your name. So I take the last part, uh, or excuse me, the last name as part of my name, and you take my last name as part of your name. Again, we're intermingling, we're sharing our identification, okay? Now, you're there in Genesis. Go over to chapter 17 with me. Genesis 17, and this is part of later when God made covenant with Abram, all right, Genesis 17 and verse 1, it says, when Abram was 99 years old. Now, what do we know? Uh, he's called Abram now. What did his name become? Abraham. Abraham or Abraham, okay, as we know him. When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And then he goes on and declares some other things. But here's what I want you to see. God's name in Hebrew is four consonants. Y-W-V-H. We call it Jehovah. Okay, some, some call it Yahweh. All right. The last letter in God's name in Hebrew is H. So what God did is he took the latter part of his name and put it in the middle of Abraham's name. He took the H, which is a Hebrew letter, and he put it in Abraham's name. So what he did is he changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And so he took part of his name. And so from then until eternity, Abraham will always have part of the name of God in his name. Man, what an awesome privilege, okay? But what God did is he uh, was, was exchanging the name with Abra Abram to become Abraham, all right? So after this part, you after the two of us would exchange names, then number six is you would make a scar. You would make a scar. So the place where we had cut to commingle our blood, what you would do is you would purposely either take sand or rock or dirt or something, and you would put it in that wound so that it did not heal up and close up totally, you wanted it to make a scar. You wanted it to scar. So what they would do is that they would do whatever it took to cause that wound 
to scar. So the scar would be, as long as I'm alive, it is a witness to the covenant that I have made with you, and it will always be there to remind each of us of our covenant responsibilities to each other. It is the guarantee of the covenant. I can never say, I never made a covenant with you. Yeah, you did. Look at your hand. All right. Look at your wrist. It is scarred. And so if anyone tries to harm us and uh, we all we have to do is raise up that right arm and show the scar. And by that, we I could be by myself facing an adversary. And all, if they were trying to harm me, all I would have to do is show that scar to them. And it would say to that enemy, you are not just dealing with me. You're dealing with me and my covenant partner, the one I'm in covenant relationship with. You're saying to your enemy, there's more to me than meets the eye. You're, if you're coming after me, you're also going to have to fight my blood covenant partner. And you don't know how big he is. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take your chances or are you going to back off? And so very often it would keep battles from taking place. You know, you might have heard of Dr. Henry Stanley uh, was a, a missionary slash explorer in Africa, traveled all across the continent of Africa. And uh, you can Google him and look him up, but this was during the 1800s. And throughout his explorations in Africa, he cut a covenant 50 times with various chiefs of villages all throughout the continent. And so his, his body was scarred with marks of these 50 covenants that he had made with these chiefs. And so anytime that he would come across a tribe that was unfriendly to him, now he's white, he's from Europe, he's white, and uh, or he's actually from the UK. And so anytime he would come across an unfriendly tribe, all he had to do was hold up his arm or show them the scar. And that scar was easily identifiable to that tribe of who he had made a covenant with. And any would-be attacker would back off and take off running in the other direction because it's not that they were afraid of Stanley. It's they were afraid of who Stanley was in covenant with. All right. Now, Somebody think with me for just a moment in John, the 20th chapter, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, you remember doubting Thomas had the conversation and he told him, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead until I see the prints in his hands, the nail prints in his hands, or thrust my hand into his side. And you remember when Jesus appeared to them later on, he turned to Thomas and he said, Thomas, be, don't be faithless, but believing. Take your hand or take your finger and put it into my hand. Take your hand and thrust it into my side and don't be faithless. Now, here's one thing you need to know or, or use your noggin with me for just a moment. Was Jesus resurrected at that point? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. He was. A, he had been raised from the dead. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Had his body been healed? Yes, his body had been healed, but here's what's unique about the Lord Jesus. 
is he will throughout eternity bear the scars of the covenant that he bore for us on the cross so that forever throughout eternity, he is permanently marked showing I am in covenant with these people. So all you have to do, if you ever doubt it, look at his hands, look at his feet, look at his side. He bears the scars of the covenant. Okay. Now here's number seven. The next thing you would do is you would give the terms of the covenant. And most of the time it would go something like this. You would stand before all the witnesses and typically this was a big deal. So you would have all the villagers would come out and would watch this transpire and take place. So you're declaring this before all of these witnesses, all of my assets are yours. All of my money, all of my property, all of my possessions are yours. If you need any of them, you don't even have to ask. Just come and get what you need. What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. If I die, all my children become yours by adoption and you become responsible for my family as I will be responsible for your family. But at the same time, not only are you gaining all of my assets, you're also gaining all of my liabilities. Any debts that I have, you are inheriting them. Anything, if I ever get into trouble financially, I don't have to come and ask you for money. I come to you and I say, where is your money? And we are in covenant. And again, everything I have is yours and yours is mine both assets and liabilities. Now, here's what, what you need to understand and just to shed a little light on where we're going with the blood covenant. Ideally, okay, and, and maybe this wouldn't be motivation, but ideally what would happen is you would enter into a covenant relationship with someone that was... uh more powerful than you or bigger than you in the sense of the, and the reason that you would try and do that is because through the covenant, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Let me say that to you again, through the covenant relationship, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Let me explain it to you this way. What do you and I, I mean, what could we ever offer to God as a covenant partner to him? Absolutely nothing. But because we are in covenant relationship with him, we gain everything that he is. And he took, we, we were nothing but liabilities. I mean, spiritually and everything. Okay, think about it. So what God did when he entered into a covenant relationship with us through the Lord Jesus Christ, he decided to take all of our liabilities on himself and give us all of his assets, all that he is. So therefore, we are blessed by the greater in this relationship. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So then after uh, you would give the terms of the covenant, then you would eat a memorial meal. 
you would eat a memorial meal. So uh, in place of consuming the animals and the blood and everything, what you would do is you would eat bread and you would drink wine. We take a loaf of bread, we break it in two, we feed it to each other saying, this is symbolic of my body. And now I'm putting my body in you. And then we serve each other the wine and say, this is symbolic of my lifeblood, which is now your blood. I'm in you and you're in me. We are now one together with a new nature. Now I want you to go over with me to John's gospel, the sixth chapter, please. Isn't this wonderful? Yes. John 6, verse 47. I'm going to read a portion of scripture to you that maybe by itself didn't make a whole lot of sense to you as to what Jesus was saying. But in light of what I just told you, it will make total sense. Okay. So Luke, or excuse me, John 6, verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Well, you can go on and read, you know, Jesus said that, and one of the Gospels said that a lot of, even his own family members left and thought he was crazy at this point because of what he was declaring. But what he was giving us was a foreshadowing of what was going to take place in this covenant relationship, no, and no. that you and I spiritually would no. feed upon the bread of his flesh no. and the life of his blood and it would become a part of us. And then uh, what do we do? Of course, at our church, we do it every month. What do we do? What do we receive? Communion. Communion. What's in the communion? The elements. Which are? Yes, the, the wine and the bread. The wine and the bread, or, you know, the little wafer and grape juice in our case. Yeah. All right. So what are we doing? Paul, Paul said this, in quoting Jesus, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. When we receive communion, it's not just a religious tradition. What we are to do is we are to remember the covenant that we have in him, and every time we partake of that, we're 
memorializing that covenant. It's a covenant meal. Okay. Now, of course, it's tied into the Passover and all of that. We'll talk about that later on. But the main thing that I want you to see is, is that part of this process was this covenant meal, and it was to serve not only as a witness to everybody, but as a reminder to us that we are partaking of the flesh and blood of our covenant partner. Okay. All right. Then number nine, the last thing that we would do very often, not every time, but most of the time, what you would do is you would plant a memorial tree. And so what would happen is to leave a memorial of this covenant that's been cut in this particular village, we would plant a tree so that every time we pass by it, every time the, the witnesses pass by it, they would see it. So we plant a tree, and then the animals that we have split that are on the ground, we take some of their blood and we sprinkle it on the tree. So again, we're making a memorial. Well, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24 in the New King, I mean in the King James Version, it says, who in his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Okay. So that we could live and walk in righteousness and by whose stripes we are healed. Very often in the scriptures, the cross is referred to as a tree. It is a memorial for us. Now, there's nothing magical about the cross. The cross is not a good luck charm, okay? So hopefully you're not wearing one around your neck to keep away vampires and bad luck because it's not designed to do that. The cross is a memorial for us of what Jesus did for us. Now, this completes the covenant ceremony. So the ceremony is done, and now there is a designation that we share okay, that um, takes on a whole lot different meaning than it does in our culture. Go with me over to James chapter 2, please. James chapter 2. Now, after Abraham had cut the covenant and was in covenant relationship with God in James chapter 2, in verse 23, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, you know what's interesting is I know of, I may be wrong, but I only know of two men in the Old Testament that received that designation. Abraham was referred to as a friend of God, and the Bible says that God talked to Moses like he would a friend. Okay, now, you know, I'm not taking anything away from anybody else, but what I'm saying to you is what we call friends are really not friends most of the time. Most of the time, who we call friends are just maybe acquaintances or deep acquaintances. No, somebody that becomes a friend is somebody that is on this level of relationship, covenant level relationship. Okay. So once Abraham and God were in covenant with each other, God referred to Abraham as his friend. Now go back with me to the gospel of John, please. 
the Gospel of John, verse 12. Uh, did I say chapter 15? No. Okay. John 15 and verse 12. John 15 and verse 12. Jesus said this, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Okay? You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So in the new birth and after becoming a born-again believer, God doesn't look at you as an acquaintance. Through the covenant that we have through God or through the Lord Jesus with the Father, we are friends of God. We are not just acquaintances. We are covenant friends with him, okay? So, what I want to do in the time that we have remaining uh, tonight, I want us to look at an instance. Uh, we looked at Abram. I want us to look at another situation. Uh, go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'm going to show you some types and shadows that played out in actual characters and, and events that took place in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, you by this time, you know, David has just slain Goliath, and uh, so Saul is real happy with David, and everything is peachy, and so everything's, you know, going along really well. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 uh, from the New Living Translation, so just follow along in your translation. And it, so it says this, now, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact or a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David. Now, I want you to just pause for a second. Think with me here. Jonathan is a prince. He is the son of the king. So his robe that he would have worn was a royal robe, okay? David is just a shepherd. Yeah, he just killed Goliath, okay? But his upbringing, he came from a little town that's a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. He's just a shepherd boy, but now he's been given a royal robe. And he, so he sealed the pact by taking off his robe, giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt, okay? So David, and, and that's all we see as far as their covenant relationship, the actual cutting of the covenant and so forth, but um, we see the end results of it. Verse 5, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. 
So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So what we begin to see here is all these insecurities that Saul had the whole time are now coming to the surface and being manifested. Now, so we have some characters here in this story that I want to show you. There's, there's David, Saul, Jonathan, and then we're going to add a fourth one in just a moment. So David is the giant killer. He's the great warrior who would crush all his foes and all the enemies of Saul. David loves Saul and has Saul's best interest at heart. David could have killed Saul on several occasions later on when Saul set out to kill David. You know, there were uh, a few opportunities when David could have killed Saul and he didn't. And he always maintained a level of honor and respect towards the king. And uh, David kept forgiving him. David wants to show love to Saul, but Saul won't let him. So then let's talk about Saul for just a moment. Saul is the exact opposite of David. He has a knack for being outside of the will of God. He's rebellious, seeks to do his own thing rather than God's thing. And this rebellion continuously brings grief and sorrow to Saul. Saul is afraid of David. This soon becomes an obsession to him, so he hunts down David and tries to kill him. Saul makes everyone in his family believe that David is out to get them. Don't get too close to David or he'll kill you. He's mean and unjust and he'll destroy you if he gets the chance, Saul would say. The truth is that David is just the opposite of everything they are told to believe. And then we have Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son, and Jonathan is the exact opposite of Saul and his family. He's more like David. Jonathan loves David as his own self, and he and David entered a blood covenant. Jonathan is always trying to bring peace between Saul and David, but the harder he tries, the angrier Saul becomes. Now, later, Jonathan marries and has a son named Mephibosheth, who is Saul's grandson. When Mephibosheth is just five years old and Saul and, and Jonathan are killed in battle, the Philistines uh, attacked Israel and, and uh, uh, killed Saul and Jonathan in battle. And when the news of their deaths reaches Jerusalem, out of fear of David, because of everything the family had been told about David, Mephibosheth's nurse, his nanny, picked him up and tried to flee. And when she did, she tripped and fell and dropped him, and both of his feet were crushed and crippled for the rest of his life. The nurse then takes him to hide out east of the Jordan River in a town called Lodibar. 
Okay. Now keep bear, keep bearing with me. While in Lodibar, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth's heart hardens more and more towards David. His lame feet are a constant reminder of the belief that David is out to get them and even kill them. The sad truth is he does not know that he is in covenant with the king through his father, Jonathan. So by this time, David is king over Judah. So David begins his reign, and in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he begins to wonder if any of the family of Saul are still alive. Why? Because he wants to show them kindness because of the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And so because of the covenant he made with Jonathan, uh, Mephibosheth is still in fear, and no one tells him the truth. Finally, a former servant of Saul confides in David that there is a relative still alive down in Lodibar. Now, I, I, I'm not trying to confuse you, but let me tell you what Lodibar means. Lodibar in the Hebrew actually means literally no pasture, but it's a it's a phrase that Hebrews would use uh, to mean uh, no thing. N-O space thing, T-H-I-N-G. And what this meant was, is this town was so bad and so poor and so rough that nobody even regarded it. They, they considered it nothing. And uh, I read one commentary that said that uh, it was likened to a ghetto in the desert. So here, let, just to backtrack just a little bit, Mephibosheth is the grandson to the king, to the former king, and he's now living in the ghetto. He's living in a poor, broken-down village that nobody wants anything to do with. Okay, So David, once he ascends to the throne, he searches out Mephibosheth and brings him to the palace. Now, just to save time, um, let me read some of this to you. We won't turn there. So uh, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David. He fell on his face and he prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness because of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And so the servant Ziba was assigned to Mephibosheth to take care of him. And so Mephibosheth was allowed to move into the palace and to live with David in, in Jerusalem in the palace, to eat at the king's table anytime he wanted to. And he was now treated like one of David's sons. Okay. So Mephibosheth must now choose whether he wants to believe that all of David's goodness is true and receive it. And so he does choose to receive it. So let me break this down to you and tell you who all these parties represent here, okay? David represents God. You and I are in the family of Saul. Saul was rebellious. He was ornery. He, 
did everything to fight the will of God, you and I were born into that family through sin. Jonathan was in the family of Saul, but was like David. He was he represented humanity. And this is Jesus, born into our family, humanity, but just like God. Okay, so you had Jonathan, who was part of this wicked king's family, but was just like David. So Jesus was born of the seed of the woman and not of man, so his blood was not contaminated with the defiled blood of man. Jesus cuts the covenant in his own blood. He ate the meal. He planted a tree sprinkled with his own blood. Now Jesus, now that he has ascended to the throne, he seeks us out so that he can pour out his goodness into our lives, just like David did to Mephibosheth because of his covenant with Jonathan. God wants to have us seated at the table. We need to come out of Lodabar, nothing, the ghetto in the desert, because of our covenant relationship with God, we must choose to receive that covenant relationship, and therefore we're able to partake in all the benefits of that covenant relationship, just like Mephibosheth did with the covenant David had with Jonathan. Okay, does that make sense to you? All right, if you missed any of that, the notes are on the website, but let me wrap it up by saying this. God says to us, here are the terms of the covenant. I will take your liabilities, all your sins on myself, and I will become sin for you. I'll forgive your iniquities and I'll remember them no more. I'll take your self-righteousness and give you my own righteousness, which is pure and holy. You clothe me with your robe of sin, and I'll clothe you, clothe you with my garment of salvation and righteousness. You'll take of my own nature by the intermingling of our blood. You can become a part of me, and I'll live in your heart. My house will be your house. You can feast at my table. What does Psalm 23 says? That the Lord will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You can feast at my table. I will be a father to you and adopt you as my own son. You will reign with me and have eternal life with me forever. That, friends, is what the blood covenant does for us. All right? So. That's good. I uh, We just got it introduced, and so we're going to keep diving into this. we just barely scratching the surface. I'm telling you, this is what our whole relationship with God is all about and what it's based on. So again, uh, if you can gain understanding of this, it'll cause your relationship with God to go to a whole nother level. Amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church Podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.